This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything, everything has its own history, like benches, rubble, or wasps. Or doom, gloom, and broom. Or Zoom, Womb, and Mushroom. <laughs> I want to do the history of gloom. Yeah, I know. It was really gloomy last night. Well, it's pretty gloomy in Australia at the moment with all those bushfires. Yeah. You can barely see anything. It was gloomy last night. Yes. But also I thought gloom because we are continuing. Um, that kind of gloom? We're sort of continuing gloom. But we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, Sam Willis, who knew that the history of walking is in fact all about friendship, power and status, laziness, slavery, and all in ancient Rome, inspired by a chapter that we did in the Histories of the Unexpected, the Romans book. Interesting. It just came out in time for Christmas. <laughs> the history of benches is all about yes. political representation and the duty of public care. Anyway, uh, if the past were a corpse... Um, the man sitting opposite me would be its body snatcher. <laughs> he would be taking that corpse. He would be uh, studying it for what it could tell us. <laughs> if the past were a headstone, he would be its engraver. Oh. The man opposite me, of course, is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam, and hello, everyone. And the man sitting opposite me, because I am in such Christmassy mood, is the St Nicholas of Christmas past. Hmm. It's the... Truly excellent, famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. I like that, an actual saint of history. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Patron saint of Christmas. Patron saint of Christmas. Patron saint of history. You love that. Uh, Guys, we are... um, We're thinking about death, aren't we? We're thinking about death. We did a podcast on death. We planned to do a podcast on death, and James and I managed to talk for 40 minutes about death without actually talking about any of the things we were going to talk about, with the exception of the fighting temeraire, um, your wonderful description of someone um, leaving advice on how to care for paper. The Robert Furs Remembrance Book. The Robert Furs Remembrance Book and uh, Elizabeth I's funeral procession, the image in the British Library of Elizabeth I's funeral procession. That left myself and James with a whole load of more material about death that we were going to talk about. So, luckily for you, you get um, 
Death 2. Death 2. And Death 2. So we ended with Elizabeth I's funeral procession. And remember that we said that you could go and look at this at British Library online collections. So it's this wonderful, um, vivid picture of her funeral procession. And it's very hierarchical. Now, connected to that, and I was going to go on and talk about this, I have a letter uh, that I wanted to read to you a letter from Lady Elizabeth Russell to Sir William Dethick, Garter Principal King of Arms in 1603. Now this letter connects directly in relevance to Elizabeth I's funeral procession. She writes, good Mr Garter, in other words the Garter Principal King of Arms, I pray you at your leisure, as your leisure doth best serve you, set down advisedly and exactly in every particular itself the number of mourners due to my calling being a viscountess of birth with their charge of blacks, in other words, mourning clothes, and the number of waiting women for myself and the women mourners, which with the chief mourners and her that shall bear the train will be in number 10 beside waiting women, pages and gentlemen ushers. Then I pray you what number of chief mourners, come over the page, of lords, knights and gentlemen necessary with their charge and how many servants for them beside my preacher, physician, lawyers and 40 cloaks for mine own men. Then 63 women widows, the charges of the charge of the hearse, heralds and church. Good Mr. Garter, do it exactly, for I find forewarnings that bid me provide a pickaxe, etc. So which, with most friendly commendations to you, I rest, your old mistress and friend, Elizabeth Russell Dowager. So what this is all about is basically, just as Elizabeth I's funeral procession was this choreographed, hierarchical organisation and pageant, we see this in exactly the same form in this letter of Elizabeth Russell, who wants a funeral that is fit for her standing. And so she lays it out, and there's that sort of dark humour at the end, that she has these forebodings, um, that she should provide her own pickaxe. In other words, she should dig her own grave, so she's wanting to set everything straight. But mm. wedding, uh, f weddings, funerals like that were very sort of choreographed. Yeah. It sounds it, doesn't it? Yes, definitely. Mm. Now, where are you going next with death? Where um, are you taking us, Sam, on the journey ooh, towards oblivion? We can go all over the place with death. Um, let's just think about the body itself, shall ooh, we? I'll yes. tell you what got me thinking about this. Um, when I was about to talk about the fighting temeraire for death part one, you can listen to, I just reread a bit of my book about it, and I, I came across a fact which I'd forgotten about, and I... Really rather fond of. We love a fact. So, yeah, this was the fact that I remembered. Um, the captain of HMS Temeraire, who fought at the Battle of Trafalgar, this is the ship that Turner memorialised in his painting, the fighting Temeraire, was called Eliab Harvey. He was a long-lost um, relative of someone called William Harvey, hmm. who was an experimental physician during the time of Charles I. He was the one who actually discovered and proved that the blood circulated around the body. 
And research in the Harvey family papers revealed that he was responsible for the only known scientific examination of a witch's familiar. Hmm. Personally ordered by Charles I to examine a lady suspected of witchcraft who lived on the outskirts of Newmarket, the rather dubious Harvey visited her in the guise of a wizard and he succeeded in capturing and dissecting her pet toad and then rather brilliantly he wrote a scientific paper about it and concluded that the animal was a toad, <laughs> which I really like. But it made me think a bit about um, what happens to the corpse, what happens to the body, mm. and um, whether you're going to be talking about uh, dissection, autopsies, uh, mm. or other other aspects of it. Um, the auto history of autopsies is extraordinary as well. Um, you know, they did an autopsy on Julius Caesar. I didn't off the top of my head. He was but... stabbed so many times mm. in the face, in the legs, in the arms, in the back, that they wanted to ascertain which strike actually killed him. And they realised that one of the dagger strikes sliced his heart and ended his life. But the history of autopsy is one. So when we started our, our um, Death One podcast, we were thinking of all the different ways that we can talk about death, that we can yeah. think about yeah, death. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to just, you know, very much focus on the body. We did, did some stuff on boxes, didn't we, as well? Boxes, the safety, safety coffin coffins. And yes. other coffins as well, in, in, in how the body is, is put in the ground, how the body's interred, whether... Um, whether they're uh, embalmed or set fire mm. to, whatever. There's a, there is a huge and fascinating history of that that changes over time and place. One of the most important things um, that I come across is the burying in woolen acts. Do you know anything mm. about this? I don't know anything about the burying in woolen acts. It's great. Um, I should do. It's a bit like the hat issue. Uh -huh. Tell me about the hat issue, James. Oh, we don't want to bore people with the hat issue, do we? The hat, um, people had to wear wool hats in the Tudor period, as we talk about it in our show, uh, which was to support uh, the wool industry and the Guild of Cappers. And it work. was actually, because you, you legally had to. You legally had to do it. So, had to wear your hat. So a law was passed that everyone above the age of six years old, except for maids, gentlewomen and ladies, had to wear a, a, a wool cap. Right, so same same idea, same principle, same period. Everyone yes. starts having to be buried in a woolen shroud and they're doing it to try and support mm. the wool industry. Mm. So what this is all about is the desire to protect... This is, this is how death's all about economics, basically. It's all about trade. Um, what the state is trying to do is to protect the valuable wool industry. Why does it need protection? It needs protection because people are starting to import um, things from abroad particularly linen and also silks. So mm. it's stuff that's come from a long way away and there's a, a conflict in terms of, <clears throat> of economy. You know, they're, they're in kind of an economic industrial revolution race. If you want to know just how powerful these people were, have a look at one of the, these things called wool, woolen churches, common in the Cotswolds, um, East Anglia as well. A uh, particularly beautiful one is Holy Trinity Church at Long Melford in Suffolk. We should go there and do a show there. It's an absolutely magnificent thing. It is a church, but it could almost be a cathedral. Immensely elaborate. Beautiful. And it speaks really of the um, the link with the wool trade, in, with, with money, but also with religion. Um, these people were, were traders, but they also... they, they and this is all before the Reformation. The, uh, the religion was a very important part of them, and the building of woolen churches stops after the Reformation. But before the Reformation, they are immensely elaborate and extremely expensive. 
And then you have the passing of this Buried in uh, Woolens Act. And we have this passing of an act. It's in 1677 and then 1678. Uh, so actually, it's significantly after the Tudor hat issue. But what they're doing is they're, they're applying, applying it to people being buried. And you have to be buried in a woolen shroud. It is hereby enacted by the authority aforesaid that from and after the first day of August, 1678, no corpse of any person or persons shall be buried in any shirt, shift, sheet or shroud or anything whatsoever made or mingled with flax, hemp, silk, hair, gold or silver or in any stuff or thing other than what is made of sheep's wool only to be put into any coffin lined or faced with any sort of cloth or stuff of any other thing whatsoever that is made of any material but sheep's wool only upon pain of the forfeiture of five pounds of lawful money of England to be recovered and divided as is hereafter in this act expressed and directed that's only one part of this extraordinarily complex uh um, law. Mm. Exceptions, interestingly, were made for plague victims and the destitutes. But everyone hated it because what you were buried in um, was very important for people. And certainly if you were someone of wealth, you would want to be buried in your finery. If you could afford linen, you could afford silk. So this was a real imposition from above of of how you were going to transfer yourself into the afterlife and it was very very unpopular indeed but the idea of, of what you wear clothes for death is is a subject in its own right mm. Mm -hmm. um, which can be explored um, across times and across cultures yeah absolutely fascinating there's the um, actually I, I talked about this in our in our podcast on fabric um, the Marwan Marwang Dui Marwang Dui sorry Marwang Dui tombs where um, a, a Chinese princess was found and she was buried in 20 layers of silk. Oh my God, that's ostentation, isn't Properly it? Properly wrapped up, wow. yeah, yeah. Goodness Fascinating, me. but yeah, what, you're, you know, what, you, what you would be seen dead in, James? <laughs> I'd be seen dead in very little. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd, be, I'd, I'd be in silk. No, that's fascinating. I mean, you, you can think about how um, the rise of the, of the funeral parlour and presenting people and yes. open coffins and you know how and that's also and the control, having, isn't it? People having false teeth in and and it's about but it's about it's about control but it's also it's also about wanting to give people a good funeral. It's want and and actually it is probably aimed much more at the family who have to look at um, a a loved one who has who's dead and you see them in the coffin so it's more about that and it's about public display rather than actually you know just the process of getting rid of somebody mm -hmm. i want to take i want to go back to um one of the things that we talked about earlier on and we talked about in our last episode on death death one we talked about death as a process and death as something that ends life and the structural impact of that and I want to talk about wardship. And I've talked about this in the past. Because what happens when you, when a father dies leaving a child who is in their minority, in other words, they have not become a legal adult who has legal rights themselves, they then have somebody who looks after them. Now, in this case, when you have a, a father who holds land in night service 
So in other words, you hold land, and because you hold that land, you in time of war, you have to produce a certain number of horses or knights or whatever to pay for the war effort. When, they di- when, when such a person died and their child was in their minority, so in other words, for boys, they were under 21, uh, which still is seen today as the sort of age that you get, the, that you really sort of come of age. Um, girls, it's 16, so it's younger. Um, and, and that's really a sort of patriarchal thing. So it's about marrying a, a, a girl when she's younger and getting, getting her land. But when her father dies, leaving somebody in their minority, they become the property of the crown. I've talked about this in the past. And so the crown basically wants to, is able to control that person. Um, and what they're after, really, and this goes back to feudal times when you basically want to be able to control the land that gen- then generates the military service for you during times of, of war. And so what you want to do is you want to control that young person, control their lands, but also you're able to marry them off to whoever you want. Now, during the Tudor period, this was rapaciously exploited. So these were sold for increasingly high amounts of money. But also in the face of this, there were um, there were an increasing number of complaints from family and mothers who didn't get their children. So imagine that. Your husband dies, you're a wife, your son gets taken away from you to go and live with somebody else who can then marry them off to whoever they want. But actually, during the... During at the end of Elizabeth's reign and the beginning of James the First's reign, you see an increasing number going to um, the, the 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 mother and to uh, the next of kin. Now, this is abolished as a system in sixteen forty six. So Cromwell gets rid of it because it's seen as one of those sort of you know antiquated uh, systems that no longer has any place in the new republic. But I want to give you, uh, this is a, uh, an episode of Women's Letters, but I want to read you a letter from Lady Penelope Rich to the master of the court of wards. So the man who basically ran and looked after the court of wards and was instrumental in placing wards and also using it as a, as a form of taxation. So the Tudors made a lot of money out of it because people paid for wardship. Death is a business, is really important. Death, death is a business. Yeah. So um, this is from Lady Penelope Rich, very powerful um, Elizabethan gentlewoman, noblewoman. She is the sister of the Earl of Essex, that sort of Tudor Elizabethan playboy who gets executed for high treason. But she's writing, basically asking for a ward. The great favour your lord hath promised me touching the request my lord of Leicester made to her majesty for Sir Robert Jermyn's son hath now emboldened me to be a humble suitor to your lord for the performance of it, hoping only in your lord's favour, which is the means to accomplish my desire. Wherefore, I beseech your lordship to make me so much bound unto you as to set it so forward as that I may shortly hope to see an end of it, and I will acknowledge it ever as proceeding from your Lord's great favour, and will employ myself both to deserve it and to show all thankfulness for so great a benefit. 
I would have been glad to have waited on your Lord myself, but if I might have been have done you any service, but my burden is such as I am fitter to keep the house than to go anywhere. Wherefore, I hope your lordship will pardon me for this time and accept these lines which, with which I commend both myself and my suit unto your lordship's favour, written from York House this 10th of September, 1588, by her that desires to your merit your lord's favour, Penelope Rich. So basically, she's asking for the favour of the wardship, but it is all wrapped up in this very deferential language of obligation, that if he favours her in this way, she will be obligated to reciprocate, and she will forever have his, or he will forever have her gratitude and, and service. Why does she want one? She wants one because she can make money out of it. Ah. Because basically, if you have that lord, if you have a wardship and somebody is a wealthy heir, you control their lands during yeah. the period until they are, they have their, their they come out of their minority. Um, politically, that's very important. Then you can sell the wardship on as well. And you can marry them off to whoever you want. So it's a way of cementing... Um... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Political links, but also cementing your wealth. It's one of the ways, if you, if you buy somebody's wardship... Uh, you might then marry if you if you bought a if you bought a a daughter, you could then marry it off to your son and immediately gain that the land that was brought into the to the marriage. So it's very very few, fruitful. The state papers and the Cecil papers are full of petitions for wards wards like this. And then you've got the obvious issue of protector Somerset. Yes. And and how do you deal with a with a with a ward who's a king? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, obviously referring to Henry VIII's son Edward there. When Edward VI. Edward VI and protector Somerset took reins, didn't he? He did. He basically controlled everything, got too big for his boots, and then was uh, executed. Ah. A man who came to a sticky end, uh, aristocratic, acquisitive, um, and um, uh, just general all-round bad guy. The, I mean, just talking about your 
so if you're a historian like yeah. us um, and you're interested in death, one of the questions is, OK, oh. how, how do you get into it? How do you get into so death? What, what you were talking about, though, these different aspects of it, there are different ways you can study yep. it. So you're talking about the, the, what was it, the letters, the wards letters, where were they yes, kept? The, they're, they're, they're just in state papers, but there are the records of the court of wards, okay, um, which are very detailed. I mean, if you get into the sort of the, if you get into the materials of death, I mean, you can study death in all sorts of ways. And again, it depends what aspect of death you're interested in. If we look at it as a process, um, a process that's linked to inheritance, uh, families generate all sorts of material connected to that. So there are wills, you know, there are property deeds, there's the book that we, we wanted. If you're interested in the feelings and emotions connected to death, then then letters are very good. So letters of condolence, um, diaries are places where you can see people describing feelings like that. If you're interested in things like funerals and death and grief, um, you can get that from letters. You can get that from diaries as well, descriptions of how people feel at that. If you're interested in the organisation and arrangement of death, then accounts are really useful for that. So payment for funerals. Um, I just remember going to Highgate Cemetery with you. Oh, that was brilliant. I mean, the other thing is, if you're interested material in the culture. material culture of death, visit, you know, go into any... Parish, go to Highgate Cemetery. Go it's to, amazing. Go to Highgate Cemetery, but go into any local church yeah. and wander around the graveyard and look at the look at the, the, the statuary that's there, look at the gravestones that are there, look at the, look at the wording on people's gravestones. Um, look at art. Look at literature, poem, poems inspired by death. I mean, you know, all, all sorts of ways, all sorts of ways into probate itself. So wills and probate inventories are a snapshot of, they are, they are documents that are produced because of death, but then they are a snapshot of life. Nice, James. See what you See did what there. I did there. They're a snapshot, they're a snapshot of, live, of live life frozen yeah. in time. He really looked surprised when he said yes. that. <laughs> it was really good. Did, um, so two aspects of the material culture of death yes. I've, I've come across, which I'm fascinated by. Um, being able to do the material culture of something, the archaeology of something, I mean, you could do the archaeology of death. It's absolutely fantastic. I'm not talking about excavating bones. I'm talking about the material culture of it, the, um, like the historical archaeology of it. So mort safes are very interesting. Um, comes back to body snatching. So a big problem with body snatchers, bodies being being taken and then sold to um, medical researchers, mm. essentially. Uh, particularly a problem in Scotland. I don't know why it was particularly a problem in Scotland. I've just realised that. Anyway, um, one of the reasons that... Um, well, one of one of the, the the implications of it being popular in Scotland is that a lot of the archae a lot of the material culture that resulted from body snatching is extant in Scotland. So there are... Um, graveyards with watchtowers. Mm. Um, so if you think about the actual practice of body snatching, how do you get around it? The first thing you've got to do is try and not be seen by the person who's looking out for you to try and catch you. Once it became a real problem, they had they had actual watchtowers. They had raised watchtowers in the middle of cemeteries to keep an eye out over the dead, to keep a watch over the dead. And they also had uh, these things called mort safes, which are like a sort of an iron lockable grill, which protected... Um, access to the entombed body. Mm. 
Hmm. Um, and I don't know if anyone's done an archaeology of that and tried to work out the cultural implications of what's going on and how that manifested, oh, manifested itself. I'd love to know if you have done one or you know someone, get in touch with me. But I think that's fascinating. But the other aspect of it is um, death masks. Ooh. Right, there's a collection of 37 death, death masks at UCL and they were um, collected by the 19th century phrenologist, one of these people who studied the shapes of people's heads. Uh, in the 19th century. He collected them between 1837 and 1850. So the question I think is quite fascinating is what you do as a historian with something as amazing as that. How do you use that to explore the history of death? Um, and one of the... They've, uh, is this the Robert Knoll collection of life and death masks? Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. It's got a variety. got some suicides, got some highwaymen, got some murderers, uh, got uh, a child prodigy, a music, musical child hmm. prodigy. So one of the things you can do is you can find out who these heads are, because a lot of them just have a, have a, a label on them that says murderer, for yes. example. Yes. But being able to go back and try and find out a bit more about who that person was and what they thought about it was. Obvious way of doing it is you link those heads with a little book which was about the collection, which was written in 1883. Um, called Notes Biographical and Phrenological Illustrating a Collection of Casts by Robert R. Knoll. So someone's already done that. You can go back yeah. and look at how they engaged with those heads in the past. Um, and it means that a lot of them have stories going with them. So there's, uh, there's one chap who's a murderer. Um, his wife kept her massive debts a secret from him prior to their marriage, and she accused him, despite his ugliness, <laughs> of mm. being unfaithful. Uh, all of the tension and hatred eventually culminated in him drowning their sickly son and killing his wife with an axe at the bottom of the stairs. He told everyone else in the house that she fell, but no one believed she fell, fell repeatedly onto an axe. Um, that's just one of a number of stories that you can get out of these, these heads. But you can think about the process of collecting. How were they actually collected yep. um, in the 80s? Because he's got heads from Belgium, Germany, England. He's got them from all over the place. Um, the curating of that collection, what he was hoping to get out of them, how he was actually interacting with them. So not only can you think about how historians would study that material culture now, but you can think about how they did it in the past and how that changed. And, and, that, and the impulse there is about creating a taxonomy of these death masks as well. You don't just want to study one in isolation. You want to get a sense of like the variety and depth and meaning of it. Yeah. Um, to end, I'd like to go back to this idea of emotions and diaries yeah. and how people respond to death. Um, and there's a brilliant collection by, by my old supervisor called Ralph Holbrook on the English family, a collection of diaries um, that illustrate various aspects of family life. It's out of print now, but you can pick it up on... Uh, in used bookstores, you can get it in libraries. Um, but there's a wonderful section on parents' old age and deaths. And quite a few extracts talk about the response of children to parents dying. And one of my favourite characters is a woman called Anne Clifford, who's an extraordinary late Elizabethan uh, Jack uh, Stuart gentlewoman so she's living end of the 16th century through into the sort of second half of the 17th century very very close to her mother margaret clifford margaret clifford when anne clifford is spectacularly um disinherited from her father 
it doesn't inherit the title that goes to a, a sort of um, an uncle and spends a lot of time with her mother, you know, trying to deal with this. So the, the, the two of them are so close. And in her diary, there are various, asp various sort of extracts where you can see how close she was and how she responds to her mother's illness and then death. So she, she, she learns how very sick and full of grievous pains my dear mother was. So as she was not able to write herself to me and most of her people about her feared she would hardly recover this sickness at night. I went out and prayed to God, my only helper, that she might not die in this pitiful case. On the 23rd, Kendall, a servant, came and brought me the heavy news of my mother's death, which I held as the greatest and most lamentable cross that could have befallen me. Upon the 11th, about five o'clock, came my cousin William Howard and five or six of his. About eight, we set forward the body going in my lady's own coach with four horses and myself following it in my own coach with two horses and most of the men and women on horseback, so as there was about 40 in the company and we came to Appleby, in other words, the, the family house, about half an hour after 11 and about 12, the body was put into the ground. About three in the morning, we came home. Sixteen, the 24th of May, 1617, we set up a great many of the books that came out of the north in my closet, this being a sad day with me thinking of the troubles I have passed. I used to spend much time with Mr Woolrich, another servant, in talking of my dear mother and other businesses in the north. And then finally, the 3rd of November, I went to Austin Friars, where I wept extremely to remember my dear and blessed mother. I was in the chamber where I was married and went into most of the rooms in the house, but found very little or nothing of the stuffs and pictures remaining there. So it's a really sort of tender account of a mother's relationship with her daughter and her daughter's just repeated remembrance of her, her mother and the closeness that they had when they were alive. It always almost brings a sort of tear to my eye. Uh, and one, one, shouldn't, one should be completely dispassionate and objective as a historian, but there are moments where that absolutely touches you. And reading through this collection, there are, you know, such tender moments. Just remember the, the, when we did the episode on the clock yep. and the father who gave the, the son the watch back yes. and then the son giving it to the father and, 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 and what that meant. Um, and, it, and I think what you have depicted in some of these diaries is the tenderness of that final moment of passing. Have you ever been at somebody's deathbed? Have you ever witnessed the dying? No, no. No, I've witnessed, I've, I've been at two deathbeds uh, of both my, grand, my, my maternal and my paternal grandfather. I was very glad I did. I wasn't there right at the, at the end, but I was there when... And it's, it's, quite, it's quite a sort of family bonding experience, but also deeply upsetting. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, it's that, it's that sort of death rattle as the lungs fill with water and you hear them effectively just, you know, slowly dying and drowning that I just found so, so upsetting. I think, you um, know, the history of emotion as well is, is one of the most um, well, emotional, but the most um, engaging things you can do as a historian. Yes. So if, you, if you're not a historian, you're interested in it, you want to get into it, I'd fully recommend 
yeah. doing just starting with the history of emotions, whether it's grief, whether it's love, whether it's laughter, whatever it might be, because it's something you can instinctively get. Yes. You instinctively yes. understand. Um, Are you scared of death? Uh, no, not not frightened. No, I don't think no, I am. Frightened. I mean, do you do you think about death? Um, Gosh, this is very very introspective, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes. Well, I, I do vividly remember um, me my seeing my grandfather, my mum's dad, for the very last time. This chap here, huh? A little picture of him here in uh, in Burma in the Second World War on my desk by my desk, and uh, he was quite a, he was he was a hard man, and he. Um, just as I said goodbye to me, he had a heart attack and a stroke. He, there wasn't, you know, he didn't have much, much, much left. And just as we said goodbye, I must have been about eight or nine or something. Mm. He winked at me just as I left the room. He'd never winked at me before. It was a completely unusual thing Gosh. for him to do. And I wow. and um, and I remember him. That's the thing I remember him is a, is a sort of a kind of. It's really weird actually because he wasn't really like that. Um, but he obviously was deep down that I never get. I never yeah. got to see it um, for whatever reason. And I think he realised that. And um, and he knew I wasn't he wasn't going to see me again. Hmm. Yeah. That's very touching. Very touching. Um, guys, thank you all for listening. I've really enjoyed doing our two part episodes on yes. death. Um, yes. Much more kind of. We didn't do suicide. Much more life affirming than um, you might yes. suspect. Well, death, death is. It's about celebration. Yeah. Celebration Not of sure life. Suicide. And, and, it's about and, celebration. No, no, suicide isn't. But um, maybe we should do a special on suicide. Yeah. Okay. Or death um, three. Yeah. Death three. Maybe. Um, guys, thank you all very much. Um, let me just ask you all, it's, a, it's a kind of a bit of a beg really, James and I record in our shed. Um, I think we probably had to stop speaking 20 times yes. just during this half an hour episode because trains come fast all the time. And to save you the, the hassle of it, um, we stopped talking, we edited it all out, so it's a bit of a pain. Um, and so we've set up a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. And any money that goes in there, we're putting aside to be able to um, hire out a local recording studio, which means our lives will be better. We'll be able to do it quicker, we'll be able to record more, and the audio will be better. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so what more could you ask? Yeah, for? if you could just, um, just a couple of dollars a month really would make all the difference at this stage in our development. Otherwise, thank you all so much for listening. Follow us on both on Twitter. I'm Dr. Sam Willis. James is at James Daybell. Unexpected Pod is where you find the podcast. And have a look online for everything we've got coming up, like our tour. We've got um, loads of dates coming up um, in theatres uh, all over the country and churches. It's going to be super, super fun, and we're looking forward to it very much. It's going to be a busy year. It is. Um, thanks very much, everyone. Uh, oh, and James, he will, if you're a teacher, get in touch with James. Um, we've been going to schools and changing the way people think about the past. And um, also, if you work in a museum, do please get in touch with James. Um, and let's see if we can get this funky way of thinking about the past into mainstream life. Really appreciate it. Bye. Bye, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.